0: All right, everyone. Well, you quieted down rather quickly. That was good. Who is the criminal that made those marvelous uh, bars? All right. Guilty. Make those again. Well, out of rot comes something great. I mean, you will all rot, and then there's the resurrection. So, out of rot comes something great. We have a oh, the speaker is on. Ah, yes. Hang on one second there. So, Psalm 149 is our psalm for the week. And um, don't worry. And uh, hymn 514 is the hymn for the week. All right? Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. in the assembly of Godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Amen. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people.
1: He adorns the humble with salvation.
0: Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their heads. Let the high pre- praises of God be in their throats.
1: And to wedge swords in their hands.
0: To execute vengeance on the nations. And punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains. And to execute on them the judgment written this is honored for all his godly ones praise the lord glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever amen from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Lord God, Heavenly Father, grant us faithfulness in our worship that we may may truly praise You by singing this new song of salvation in Christ and by faithfully preaching Your law and gospel to all. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. What is the first petition or the introduction to the Lord's prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven. What does this mean? With these words God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children. So that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. What is the first petition? Hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. Lord God, Heavenly Father, send forth your Son, we pray, to lead home his bride, the Church. That with all the company of the redeemed, we may finally enter into his eternal wedding feast, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, by your grace, the Apostle Andrew obeyed the call of your Son to be a disciple. Grant us also to follow the same Lord Jesus Christ in heart and life, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Into your hands, O Lord, we commend Anna as she recovers from her colon surgery. Dave, who is also recovering. Kevin, from open heart surgery. Chase, being treated for a seizure disorder. Ron, hospitalized and undergoing medical testing. Gene, who is recovering from brain surgery and in Treatment for brain cancer, Patty, who is in rehabilitation, Amy, who struggles with stroke-related issues, Connor and Travis in their recovery, Sue in hospice care, Lyle and Jan Wallen, all those who are suffering with mental illness and distress, those in treatment for cancer, Reverend Luke Berenger, Reverend Dr. John Willey, together with Michael, Kathleen, Dennis, and Gabby, and those who mourn the death of loved ones, especially Jim Miller, who mourns the death of his wife, Kathy. Into your hands we commend them, trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we remember also George as he is well on the road to recovery from pneumonia. Grant them thankful hearts and the eyes of faith to be fixed upon Jesus, even in the cross of affliction, that drawing strength and comfort from him, they may abide in the consolation of his love. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, From evil, for For thine thine is the kingdom, and the the power, and and the glory, forever forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 514, stanzas 1 and 2. This hymn, of course, uh, takes up the theme from uh, Sunday's Gospel at the end of the church year, the wise and the foolish virgins, the lamp, the heart, the oil, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and faith, which makes us prepared for our Lord's
1: return. The bridegroom soon will call us, come to the wedding feast may slumber not befall us nor watchfulness decrease may all our lamps be burning with oil enough and more that we with him returning may find an open door there shall we see in glory our dear Redeemer's face. long-awaited story of heavenly joy takes place. The patriarchs shall meet us, the prophet's holy band. Apostles, marches, greet us in that celestial.
0: You know, uh, singing this uh, hymn, and then it reminds me of um, things that are a part of catechesis that um, are sometimes not a part of catechesis, but need to become depending on the cultural context and the situation that the church finds herself in this world. You don't know, have the slightest idea what I'm talking about right now, but <laughs> let me try to explain. The, the, the ultimate goal of catechesis, the primary focus, is repentance and faith in Jesus. Punkt. So that, so that the catechumen learns... How to receive God's gifts in the divine service, in word and sacrament. With what faith do they approach the altar? With what faith do they come into the liturgical assembly and so forth? And then out of that comes how to live one's life in one's station and calling with faith in Christ, but then love to the neighbor. That's the primary focus then of catechesis. However, there are some other things. There's some nuts and bolts things that are really helpful. And it was brought home to me how ignorant, over the last couple of years, how ignorant our society is to what we take for granted if you've been in the church for a while something like music and hymn singing. So I have attempted at the beginning of funerals, knowing there are a lot of guests there, who knows what their background is, to, you know, we, some of these hymns were specifically chosen by the person you're coming to pay respect for. We open the hymnal and at least pay attention even if you're not much of a singer. Okay? But, and they may do that, but they look at a hymn like 514 or any any of the hymns and they don't know, they don't know the first thing about how it's laid out. That stanza one starts here in this score of music and then goes to the next score and the next score and the next score, and then you go back to stanza two. They look at that and they think that maybe all four of these lines are read at the same time. Really? They are just utterly clueless. Okay? So the idea, and then of course, we don't help matters, frankly, because we have screens in our churches that, that obliterate the quiet, meditative, artistic focus of the liturgical assembly on the crucifix Stained glass windows, icons, carvings. Instead, wah! It's it's Madison Avenue, and then you're spoon feeding them. So no one uses the hymnal. Well, not no one, but few are taught to use the hymnal as a devotional, you know, device. You might say, well, the hymnal didn't. Hymnals didn't come into existence until the invention of the printing press, and that's correct. But screens and projectors came a lot later. What what sustained the church in the first 1,500 years was learning by heart liturgy, learning by heart these sacred texts, memorizing them, and allowing... I think the gospel in the Middle Ages, when it was obliterated, people people's uh, ignorance and literacy may have been illiteracy may have been high, but to look at stained glass windows and even if you couldn't read, to see the story of salvation laid out there beautifully, or in statuary work and so forth. So we have. It's interesting to me that so many in the church, nominal Christendom, with all of the quote-unquote advantages of computer, printing press, books, the availability of Bibles in their homes, know less about the faith, biblical narratives, the texts of Scripture, than two or three centuries ago. I'm telling you, when when you didn't have a hymnal and you didn't have that capacity, once in the period of 16th century Orthodoxy, for example, hymnals were being produced for the baptized faithful of Lutheran congregations. They were treated as if this was the greatest possession that they had. And to be able to have the Bible in your home, which in the Middle Ages you couldn't, because Bibles as printed books did not exist. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts was in a rare position to be able to be sitting on his chariot with the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. But that's only because he was the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. So it cost muko bucks. To have that. So he's reading the scroll of Isaiah about the suffering servant. Who is this about? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Is it about the prophet or someone else? And then Philip has to say, I'll tell you. Okay. So here we have all of these advantages and we despise preaching in his word and then we find ourselves in a culture of ignorance about a lot of Nuts and bolts kinds of things. So, I found more and more now catechesis has to include explaining how to operate the hymnal. Okay, it's true. Any comments or questions about that?
1: We need to do a Bible study on the on the hymns and the history behind them. I asked you about that a couple years ago.
0: It's like the second coming. Though it tarry, wait for it. You're young. There's not a gray hair in your head. You've got a lot of years. (laughs)
1: All
0: right. Hey, let's get back into uh, the Gospel of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, I know we're beyond chapter 5, but I want you to uh, remember a little bit where we've been. In Mark chapter 5, we had the account of the demon-possessed man that was healed, and we talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God is about repentance and faith in Christ, the kingdom of God of Satan is about unbelief and the kingdom of God noted by out of this faith in Christ comes gracious, self-giving acts of love. The kingdom of Satan, the unbelief in the rejection of Christ, is noted by self-centeredness and pride and arrogance. And We talked about the swine, the unclean animals that the demons uh, went To enter into. And then a girl is restored to life and a woman is healed. Uh, This is the woman with the menstrual flow for 12 years. And um, we talked about the touch of Jesus there, that divine grace and power went out from him through his garment, through his earthly garment, and brought healing to this woman that stat, uh, status that she was in was a status of uncleanness. Uh, and so, <clears throat> the uncleanness of leprosy, or here the flow of blood, life is in the blood, so blood flowing is a token of death. And that's why it was, had the theological imprimatur of being in a state of uncleanness. So she is not simply healed of her flow of blood, but she is is cleansed and she is purified. And then Jesus goes into the home of the ruler of the synagogue and takes the young girl by her hand and raises her up to life again. So the touch of Jesus, whether it was through the garment or through his hand, we should think about, and we talked about this, the touch of Jesus today by his sacraments so the earthly elements of of water of bread of wine and that touch continues you know in the various gestures that are performed whether the pastor is laying his hands on the penitent i forgive you all your sin it's making those connections so When we see Jesus ministering his grace and forgiveness in the New Testament, we shouldn't think that that was only for that time, but he continues to do so today. He continues to minister his grace and forgiveness to us through the touch of his word and the means or instruments of the Holy Spirit to bring that to us. Okay. So then we come to Mark chapter 6. And we will uh, pick it up here. You know, after the little girl was raised up in in verse uh, 41 of chapter 5, he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, What does that mean? Well, it is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. Some might call this reverse psychology. It would be sort of like if, if, if I had some secret and I told Larry, don't tell anyone, then I would know that it would soon spread throughout the entire congregation. And there kind of was an element of that, but there's a theological connection that we've made before that when Jesus tells people not to say anything, they're, they're still going to talk. It is during his ministry he needs to be and desires to be the source of truth and the one who interprets his own miracles, which he does through his word. Apart from his word, we can't really understand uh, what is going on. Furthermore, people like the twelve disciples who are becoming apostles, they're a long way from being ready to speak about these things. Okay. So, yes.
1: There, in the Old Testament, when people went for purification rites, it was, whatever was bad was done, it was passed. Like you were cleansed from leprosy, and then you went for the purification rites. Or, or, or you touched the dead, your, your husband died, you had to bury him, and you and your son have to go for purification rites after he's buried and you've waited the time. Jesus was. Jesus was involved with these people and their uncleanness even before. It
0: well, to the ex- so was the Lord in the Old Testament. I mean, to the extent that there was any healing and the, and cleansing from leprosy didn't take place very often in the Old Testament. That's why when the ten lepers were cleansed that we heard on Thanksgiving, and were told to show themselves to the priests as a testimony to them. This was a rare occurrence, very rare. So, if lepers are being cleansed and they're being cleansed in mass, it was a sign that Messiah had come. So, uh, he's the source of that cleansing, regardless of, of when. And it's a further testimony to the fact that, how, do, how shall I phrase this? Oh, Abigail. (laughs) He's the source of the salvation. So when he cleanses the lepers, they're cleansed on their way to the temple to show themselves to the priests. So, as a testimony to them. So he's the source of the cleansing. And then the liturgy of the temple reinforced that. Visibly and publicly, um, so that um, I, I mean you 're quite right, you see it in the Gospels that he is involved with and engaged with the sinners, the unclean, the sick um, dirty pri- and, pre- and we 've made that point repeatedly that he aligns himself with sinful humanity that 's what his baptism is about. There was a hand over here.
1: Katrina. Yes, Being what? Meaning death. The flow of blood means. Yeah, death.
0: Yeah, because life is in the blood. Right. That's according to the Torah. So when the blood is shed, poured out, it, the, the life of the person is being poured out, so th- which leads to death. I mean, if I slit your throat, you won't be alive very long. The, the death is, is very quick. Because the life is in the blood, and the blood is being poured out unto death. The result is death. How
1: does that relate to Christ's flow of blood
0: on the cross? When it relates to that. He shed his blood unto death. He poured out his lifeblood unto death. His life blood, however, makes atonement for sin, in which case, the woman with the flow of blood, her blood doesn't make atonement for sin because she's a sinner and it ends in death. His blood makes atonement for sin because He is the innocent Lamb of God upon whom the sin of the world was imputed. So in the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices had the sin of individuals, or congregation, or the congregation imputed to them, imputation. Okay, you are righteous for Christ's sake. I am imputing to Pat the righteousness of Christ. Imputation. So, in Jesus' baptism, the sin of the world is imputed to him, just like all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the sin of individuals and or. The congregation was imputed to the animal. Then, which which this idea of substitutionary payment for sin, but the payment is made by the life that is in the blood. I know the Bible says the life is in the blood. God says it. But how come? I mean why? I mean, I don't understand that, I guess. It's well, <laughs> Absolutely, there's a physical... See, theology and physio- human physiology actually correspond.
1: And I, I would like if you could just expand
0: on that a little bit. Because I okay, let's look at it physiologically. Okay. Um, what do the red blood cells of a human being um, tra- uh, 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 transport? Dr. Dr. Prowatsky, oxygen. oxygen and and nutrients which are necessary to sustain life. And those red blood cells <coughs> are in, uh, also in material in the blood called plasma, right? And what is the fundamental uh, compound in blood plasma? Water. Water. Isn't it curious, why, why would water be so c- central to blood and then the sustaining of life? Do you have an answer to that? God made it that way. Well, I know, but God made it. So how does the new life come to us that has the blood of Christ in it? In the water of baptism. So what he, how we are designed physiologically does, in fact, correspond to the theological things. Where does the Spirit of God hover at the time of creation? Over the surface of the water. Okay, All carbon-based life requires water. I don't know whose cell phone is ringing out there, but... Oh, is it? Oh, I see. And forgot to pick it up. up. So that's not an accident, which is what makes our planet, to quote a title of a book by some scientists that was then made into a documentary, a privileged planet. I love how it starts out with this gushing overflowing of water. That's really great. So anyway, I, I don't know if I'm getting enough at, your, at the answer there for you. That's helped a lot. Thank you. Okay. I was just going to expound. The, the, the beginning of life is in water, in the womb. Yes. The, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. This is he who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Namely, Jesus Christ. That's in 1 John chapter 5. It's interesting. Jesus' execution upon the cross is, well, if I say it's not by suffocation, that wouldn't be exactly correct. But what does he suffocate in? His own bodily fluids that fill up the lungs and make it impossible for him to breathe. Okay, so, but... It begins with the shedding of blood in the piercing of his hands and of his feet. And then at the end, this is why the Apostle John, in his testimony in John chapter 19, they break the legs of the first and of the second criminal. And they come to Jesus, he's already dead. So by an act of divine providence, the soldier takes the spear and pierces his side and what comes out blood and water and it has a physiological aspect okay you got red blood cells and you got the water of, of blood plasma etc pouring out but mel gibson then has it correct because he pierced, the soldier pierces the side and the blood and water just gushes out, I mean, it is a torrent, upon this soldier who then drops the spear and falls down to his knees. He, the, what he, the theological point that he wants to make is this is the conversion of that man by the blood and water, which are the compounds of holy baptism, the blood and water of Christ that bring about you know, his salvation. So he's got it right. Uh, let's see. I thought, oh no, you already said about the, the womb, and that's good. Yes, Melinda. Well, I was going with, give her something to eat. Is, is, is that? I mean. It, Absolutely, okay. And it was relating also to when Jesus rose again and had something to eat. I'm assuming these things are all part of the same. Sure, and when Jesus says, on Monday, Thursday night, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What happens? He dies, he rises from the dead, and then he eats and drinks with them. So the fulfillment of that is not a futuristic thing, but already in his resurrection. Uh, and... So what do we do? We catechize and we baptize and then we give them We give them something to eat. Right? His body and his blood. So we're supposed to see that Absolutely. The sacramental connections here. Now, notice proper preparation to receive is faith. So, in chapter 5 um, verse 34, Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. He's referring both to the trust of her heart, faith, and the object of faith's trust, him as Savior through his, the sacrifice of himself. Your faith has made you well. And then, when he gets to the ruler of the synagogue's house in verse 35, your daughter is dead. Well, guess what? When a child is brought to baptism as a newborn infant, a newborn infant, the child is is dead in trespasses and sins. And so... What Jesus says to, now, this ruler of the synagogue, you know, they said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler, do not be afraid, only believe. So I've got my child here, dead in trespasses and sins, and the pastor says, Do not be afraid, only believe. Believe what? Believe in me. Trust in my word. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there is new life from death. So absolutely you want to see these sacramental connections here. Faith, you know, who is worthy to receive the Lord's Supper? He is worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you. Do not be afraid, only believe. Then the Catechism says, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith, which does what? Trusts the Word of God in the water. Without God's Word, the water is plain water, no baptism. But with the Word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water and a washing and a renewal by the Holy Spirit as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, etc., etc. Okay? So, the proper preparation for receiving the Lord's Supper is faith. And baptism both gives faith and it it, it, it both gives faith and it strengthens faith. Just like what you have in, this, um, in these miracles. Okay, that's good. I do find it interesting, notice the closed communion and the closed nature of the sacramental life here. We're still in chapter 5 then, we've gone back in there. But notice that uh, in verse 37, he permitted no one to follow him in except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. The rest of the scorners were sent out. They did not observe and witness the mysteries, the sacramental mysteries here. In the ancient church during the period of persecution, catechumens and curiosity seekers we able to hear the word. But when it came to the celebration of the sacred mystery of the Lord's Supper, deacon, the doors, and they were ushered out and the doors were closed. Hence, the word closed communion. It was only for the baptized faithful who had been catechized, who knew their sin and who knew their Savior and who confessed the faith, The placement of the Nicene Creed after the sermon, it is better to understand that as the placement of the creed immediately preceding the supper. In other words, the creed is the closed communion statement that everyone who is partaking here at the altar is confessing according to the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now, the Nicene Creed, you know, but 325, you're talking about at the culmination of um, the period where Christianity went from being an unrecognized illegal language to being a recognized legal language under uh, religion under Constantine but prior to this you know only those who could confess jesus is lord only those who would confess i renounce the devil and all his wicked works and all his wicked ways which is some of the most ancient part of the baptismal liturgy only they were allowed to be inside for the holy communion talk about talk about closed communion that was really closed <laughs> but the creed functioned as a closed communion statement. This is, this is the faith that we share together and are celebrating at the altar of the Lord. Okay, so, yeah, they laughed him to scorn, and when he had put them all out, verse 40, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked she was 12 years old and they were overcome with great amazement and he commanded them strictly that no one should know it i like the great amazement because everybody in there is a believer and yet they're still amazed at the what the grace of jesus does in comforting and the sick and raising the dead Okay, other questions on that? It's good. This is the questions after two weeks of hiatus. Anything else? Anything confusing? Okay, I get that, but I under, I. what about this? Can you help me understand? Polly?
1: No, no, I, no
0: it's just my, no. If your hand goes up, you're going to either buy something at the auction or... Uh, Sherry? Is there anything about the fact that the woman had 12 years of the flow
1: of blood and the girl is 12 years old? Is there anything significant to the 12? What do you think? Mm -hmm. 12 disciples. I think there is. is. Yeah,
0: well, the number 12 is uh, significant. There were the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why Jesus chooses the 12 men. To be apostles, to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a, a multiple of 3 times 4. Is that right? Okay. Anytime math comes in, I've got to double check with Beth. But, and 4, 4 winds, north, south, east, west, 3, a Trinitarian number, and a resurrection number. Okay? So, um, when you see those great, um, those great altar pieces and so forth, and I, I forget who did this, but the great altar piece of Revelation where they're g- g- gathered around the throne of the Lamb and um, there's the apostles and the prophets, and the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, and then the water flows from him out as the river of life. You know, and uh, the, the twelve for the healing then of the nations. So, so <clears throat> Israel is chosen, the twelve tribes of Israel are chosen for, in the Old Testament, the healing of the nations. Okay, and so the fruit from the twelve tribes of Israel brings healing to the nations. So... Yeah, you can, um, you can swim around and circle back and it causes you to meditate on you know, other, other portions of Scripture. Okay? And Jesus is 12 years old when he was with the teachers. Yes, uh, Jesus is 12 years of age. He begins to take on the um, responsibility of a man. So, ironically, and we'll have that story this year after Christmas, Okay, Um, the boy Jesus in the temple at 12 years of age, he begins to take on the responsibilities of manhood, which he had learned not only from the Torah and at the synagogue, but from Mary and Joseph. So, when they're looking for him, Uh, They apparently don't go immediately to the temple when they go back to Jerusalem. Uh, Why? I don't know, except that they were slower to understand the implications of what they had taught him than Jesus was. And they finally find him, and he says to them, you know, Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. And he says, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Was he referring to Joseph or his heavenly father? Actually, I would argue yes. I mean, Joseph taught him what his responsibility was as a man, which, of course, ultimately was the heavenly father's business. But, so he begins to do that. He's firstborn son. He's from Nazareth because he's a Nazarite, but a lot better Nazarite than Samson. If you've been reading the Congregation at Prayer, say by the way, how is George? What's the update?
1: So, a week. It'll take a long time.
0: Yeah. So but when I saw him when did I give him communion? Monday? This Samson, he says before, he was really stupid. (laughs) Yeah, the, the judges were little Christs, but very little. They did some things that made them look like Jesus in that great ending scene where he pulls down the pillars and more are killed of the Philistines in his Samson's death than in his life. Gee, I wonder if that has any significance. You know, he's stretched out. As in chapel, I was talking about this with the kids. What does this look like if you're stretched out? And some of the kids, an angel.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah,
0: that's true. What does it look like? Let me turn my hands like this. (laughs) Jesus on the cross. Okay, there you go. All right, so, uh, but he is um, the greater, certainly the greater Samson. All right, let's come into chapter six then. Rejection at Nazareth. If it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, Has webbed feet and a beak like a duck. It's probably a dog. (laughs) All right, you'll get, I'll explain why I mentioned that. He went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? It's like when you come to Bible class, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter... So there we find from Mark's reference that Jesus had been trained as a carpenter. And I'm told that carpenters are among those who are the most uh, mentally well-balanced individuals. Have you heard that? Yep. Statistically, in terms of... uh, life's work, the building of things, and the satisfaction that comes, you know, I go by, I built that house, or I built that cabinet. Okay? I go around River Forest and I say, see that, boys? Your grandfather built that. See these cabinets in the, in the sacristy? Your grandfather built that. See these taxidermy, Cabinets in Eifrig Hall? Your grandfather built that. Anyway, so is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James. Now, notice Joseph is left out. And um, at this time, the church believes and recognizes on the basis of a reading of All of the gospels that Joseph is dead. So is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So The reason I said, if it looks like a duck and cracks like a duck, and so it's a duck, there there has been uh, throughout medieval history and so forth the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. There is also along with this the idea that Jesus' birth was not in the natural way, but was a bloodless birth, that he was somehow or other transported out of her womb. Um, But Matthew's Gospel says that Joseph arose from sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had said to him and did not know Mary which is a reference to intercourse, until she had given birth to her firstborn son, namely Jesus, which would indicate in the language there that they had a normal relation as husband and wife after Jesus' birth, which does not at all militate against the virgin birth because it was a virgin who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had the Son of God conceived in her womb, and she was a virgin at the time of Jesus' birth, which is essential dogmatically because he is the Son of God and he is without sin to become the sin bearer. Uh, That Jesus is the Messiah and the sin bearer does not necessitate Mary remaining a perpetual virgin throughout her her life. So what um, some commentators do here is say, well, the word brother and sisters does not mean brothers and sisters but cousins or it means half-brothers and sisters brought into the family with the marriage of Joseph and, and, uh, and Mary. Um, I don't think it is necessary to go through that kind of gymnastics to try to explain the simple language of the verses. Now, what would be the motivation for saying, Uh, his birth was a supernatural, bloodless birth and not a natural birth, or he didn't have any half-brothers and sisters. Part of it comes from the idea that God is and remains still transcendent and distant from us. So the idea that he would actually fully come into our flesh to share fully in the corruption of our flesh is something that in medieval theology was rejected. So this is where the doctrine of, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but the the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception comes into play with respect to Mary, that she had no sin. She had to have no sin in order to be the mother of the Son of God. But Mary herself says in the Magnificat, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, and then my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So we would reject any notion that Mary, while absolutely blessed by God, can you be any more blessed by God than being gifted with the Son of God being conceived in your womb and the privilege of carrying Him and giving birth to Him. But that shows the character of the Incarnation, that, that the Son of God actually literally joined Himself to our flesh. To be human is not to be sinful. Adam was created from the dust of the ground without sin. He became a sinner and that was an alien intrusion upon humanity. But to be true man is not to be a sinner, but to be man in the state of innocence that God created Adam originally to be. And the Son of God is conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. So Mary is justified, purified, by the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, And the child is conceived by the ministry of the Spirit. That's why Luke says... The child to Mary, uh, Gabriel, uh, Luke records that Gabriel says it, therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called Son of God. Um, So there is no, when we understand that Mary is a sinner just like us, it makes the miracle of the incarnation and the gospel itself so very comforting because that means that. You and I are just like Mary. By an act of divine monergism, monergism is where God acts, he came to the Virgin Mary. He purified her. He cleansed her. And the Holy uh, Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit. By a miracle of divine monergism, Christ comes to you, purifies you, joins himself to you. Declares you righteous. Do you see the parallel there? So when Mary says in the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, that's a song that you and I can sing. And indeed, the testimony of the churches that has been sung by Christians as their song. In other words, we're joined together with Mary. Okay? At any anyway, rate. So I don't see any reason why not to to take this uh, 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 just simply at face value. Polly?
1: The word firstborn, um, does does that reflect on Mary's virginity? Or does it reflect on the fact that there were a secondborn and a thirdborn? I,
0: I think both. Okay. I think the first point of reference is not only that, it, that she was a virgin, a firstborn son conceived by the Holy Spirit, but also firstborn son theologically was important because the firstborn son, that's why the reference to Samson, was dedicated to the Lord's service. Unless that child was redeemed, so let's say if the parents only had one child, they might redeem that child to help care for the home and so forth as opposed to doing what Hannah had done. Hannah's first, um, firstborn son, Samuel, was dedicated to the Lord's service, according to the Torah. He was not redeemed. And then Hannah and Elkanah right, had more children after that. God blessed them and opened uh, her womb. So he stayed at service in the temple after he was of age. Okay. Uh, So I think it has has both of those, or all three of those connotations. Firstborn, reference to the obligation of the firstborn to be in the Lord's service. So when Jesus at 12 years of age is in the temple, that's what he is acting upon. And remember, uh, Samson, I I love that story, even though... We read it, and Beth says, these are weird stories. Yeah, well, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. Um, but Samson is the son of Manoah. And remember, the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, appeared and to uh, Samson's mother, and... What is your name? She asks him. Why do you want to know my name, seeing it is? No. Wonderful. Okay, And it's that account that convinces me that the Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the birth of the Son, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, His name will be called Wonderful. Now, in the Hebrew, you can put the two together. It would be acceptable, Wonderful Counselor, where wonderful is adjectival for counselor. But it's also an acceptable translation to say Wonderful as a noun, okay, a name, and then Counselor as a noun, a name. And um, because of the Samson account, I think it, the point is to identify Jesus as wonderful. So the, the one whose name, the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord and appeared to Samson, why are you asking my name, seeing it is wonderful? His name will be called Wonderful. Yes. Well, yes, in the Middle Ages, the act of sexual intercourse was seen as original sin. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the act of sexual intercourse was itself sinful. Even in marriage? Yes. Yeah, Yikes. Exactly. And that this is in the in the Middle Ages, this is why the recovery of the gift of marriage and the gift of sexuality as good was something that was a part of the Reformation. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, here's something else When uh, about um, virginity, though, Petrina, and purity. Many people are plagued by their past sins. Maybe they had lived together outside of marriage or had premarital sexual relations, and then they got married and they're, they're plagued by that. Or maybe there's been some indiscretion and in thought, word, and deed in their marriage. What the absolution does is when our sins are forgiven, is it declares a new reality. Okay? So, in other words, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, maybe I shouldn't use Mary Magdalene because some say that she was not a prostitute. And that's probably true. She wasn't. But the woman caught in adultery, for example, where we know in John 8, this woman was caught in adultery and brought out. Christ's absolution... Not only says, "I forgive you all your sin, I forgive you the sin of adultery, but christ's absolution says to that woman caught in adultery, "You are a new woman." I was going to use you as an example, but i didn't want to I, I didn't want to make any cause people to wonder, okay The absolution declares a new reality, so it's, it's not simply that sin is forgiven, but I 'm still uh, an adulterer, or a fornicator. But God, I have made all things new. If anyone is en Christo, in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So that's the reality. See, Mary is the pure virgin by virtue of the forgiving grace and absolution of the Lord. So are you. So if your life, if you have defiled your life and you've come to repentance and faith in Christ and you're baptized into Christ and you're absolved, then the reality is completely different. It is as if you were never a fornicator. The case of the Apostle Paul, never a murderer, never a persecutor of the church. So the absolution of Christ declares a new reality. Now, in this horizontal plane, there needs to be punishments, incarcerations, jail time, and so forth. But in our vertical relationship with God, there is a new relationship established. This is why I advocate, and some of you have heard me talk about this, if a woman has been uh, sexually abused, if a woman has been raped, It's no fault of her own. But she needs the absolution. Why? Because she has been corrupted and defiled by that violent desecration of her body. So, absolve, forgive, and proclaim you are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. You You know, who had been raped and violated. You are a new creation. You are pure in Jesus, whose blood cleanses you and restores you. And then come and partake of his holy body and precious blood for your salvation from this. This is the new reality. Okay? So that's very important. So I may say something like that in. Private confession to a man. You know, you're a new man. You are a new husband. Maybe he's been plagued by how he treated his wife. You are a new father. Maybe he's been plagued and troubled with his quick temper in dealing with his children. So you're a new man. You're a new husband. You're a new father. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. And you are righteous in him. Holy cow! We have time flies when you're having fun. Thank you all. Oh, and uh, fish fry is tomorrow, so if our if our helpers could assist in the um, that'll be great. I'll go up on the uh, ladder, so it's not. To